0: young Susan sits in the house of Mr. Beaver in the land of Narnia. There, to her surprise, she finds that the king of this land is not a man, but a lion. And uncomfortably, she says, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And she asks, Is he safe? Mr. Beaver responds, Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Now, Herman, this morning I have one central truth that I want to preach to us. Jesus Christ is not safe. We'll be back in our verse-by-verse study of Luke's Gospel next week. But this is one of those messages that has been burning within me, and this week it came to overflow. I believe it's timely. I believe it's worth the interruption. I want us to read three verses, three verses that are familiar to us, and yet they should still shock us. These are three verses that should wake us up. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So did you happen to hear the briefing this past week, this past Monday, or maybe the Friday before where Dr. Mueller is drawing our attention to the New York Times, the most influential newspaper in the world, always a bastion of secular, liberal worldviews. And this past week, the editor of the opinion page resigned, forced out after a revolt by many of the reporters at his own newspaper. and Why? What happened? What happened is that the editor chose to run an opinion piece by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas that was responding to riots, to violence, to mayhem that had broken out in various parts of various cities across the country. And Senator Cotton argued that the police were overwhelmed and ill-equipped to handle the mass looting, the property damage that was taking place. And since many governors were choosing not to call up the National Guard nor to provide backup for the police, Senator Cotton argued that our president should use his authority to send in the military to end these riots. And the title of his editorial was send in the troops. Now that was a controversial opinion, of course. And many of us might have differing opinions about how our government should respond when chaos or violence breaks out in our cities. And of course, this has nothing to do with the many protests that were peaceful and that were civil and that were carried out properly. But here's the thing. After that editorial was published, the response to it, both outside of the New York Times, but also within the New York Times, was swift. Staff members threatened a sick out, a strike, refusing to come to work. And they took to social media, declaring that they were ashamed of their own newspaper, ashamed that they would publish such an opinion piece that caused black staffers at the New York Times to feel that they were in danger. These reporters said that they felt like this editorial was an attack on minorities, and by the end of the weekend, the editor had been forced out. But what I found most telling about all of this was the analysis by Barry Weiss, a writer with The Times, who has been watching these events, and she said, the civil war inside The New York Times between the mostly young wokes and the mostly over 40 liberals is the same one raging inside the publications and companies across the country. The dynamic, she said, is always the same. The old guard lives by a set of principles we can broadly call civil libertarianism. They assumed they shared that worldview with the young people they hired, who called themselves liberals and progressives. But it was an incorrect assumption. She says this new guard has a different worldview. And Barry Weiss calls the worldview of this new rising secular generation safetyism. Safetyism. She says in this new worldview, the right of people to feel emotionally and psychologically safe trumps what were previously considered core liberal values like free speech. The right of people to feel emotionally and psychologically safe trumps what were previously considered liberal values like free speech. So put simply, she's saying that the older liberals, despite their secular worldview, despite their often unbiblical ideas, still held fast to certain fundamental principles, like the importance of the freedom of speech. But this new generation believes that my right to not feel offended or emotionally attacked, triggered, trumps and is more important than your right to speak what you think is true. It is more important for me to feel safe than for you to speak your mind. And this is the generation that has been recently coming up through the colleges and the universities. We've seen how these schools created safe spaces equipped with cookies and coloring books, bubbles and Play-Doh, calming music, pillows and blankets so that college students who felt offended by guest speakers could escape to a safe place. We've seen more and more Christian speakers banned from university campuses because the ideas of Christianity were said to be emotionally violent to the students, this is safetyism now leaving the university and coming to full effect in our culture. And before we put too much blame on this rising generation, let's remember that these are the kids that were raised by helicopter parents. Parents who were scared to let their kids play outside. Parents who refused to let their kids experience failure. Parents who failed to discipline, but instead tried to be the best buddies of their children. Modern parenting in which the kids can do no wrong has led to a new generation of adults that feel that they are being violated if it's even suggested that there is something wrong that they have said or done, or something wrong about them. What was most troubling about the analysis of Barry Weiss is she said that she saw these new woke reporters being hired, but she thought it would take years for them to transform the newspaper. She said instead, it only took a few weeks. Mount Hermon, we are now living in the age of safetyism. Sin and evil are no longer defined as the transgression of God's law. Sin and evil is defined as anyone saying or doing anything that feels harmful to me. Your freedom of speech only goes so far as I like what you're saying, but if you cause me to feel uncomfortable, to feel fear, to feel shame, I've been oppressed, and you are my oppressor. Wokeness is woven into this. You'll notice the double standard. In this new world view, it is right for those in minority identity groups to speak strong words that rattle majority groups, that make majority groups feel fearful, that make majority groups feel shame. Signs at the protest over the past weeks have said very offensive things against groups seen to be in power. Did you see the blue lives murder t-shirts? It's okay in this new world view to see the most vicious things about the people who are considered to be in power, about the people who are considered oppressors, but it only works in that direction. If majority groups speak out, even declaring what they think is true, it is offensive. And for us as Christians to call out sins like fornication or homosexuality, to say that other religions are false and lead people to hell, to argue that even the best of mothers cannot replace the role of a father, or that the best of fathers cannot replace the role of a mother. These are words that can lead to you getting fired. And friends, If this is the kind of safety that our society values, it cannot value Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is many things, but He is not safe. He's not safe because He's God. And God is not safe. Hebrews 12.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. We are meant to picture a raging fire, a fire consuming everything in its path. Remember the furnace in the book of Daniel, heated to such a degree that even those outside the furnace were burnt to death as they sought to to cast in the Hebrew boys. Picture the sun, the sun burning bright and white hot, 9,941 degrees Fahrenheit. Whatever comes near it is consumed. Our God is a consuming fire. Exodus 33, Moses wants to behold God's face. What does God say? You cannot see my face. Man shall not see my face and live. This is our God. And Christ is God. And the glory of the Son is as the glory of the Father. If Jesus were to reveal his full glory to us, something beyond the little glimpse he gave Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, no, if he were to just pull back the curtain, we would be incinerated. Jesus is not safe because he rules like a lion. Yes, the Bible presents Jesus to us as a lamb. The Lamb of God, meek and mild, sacrificed for us. Praise God for that, but that's not the whole picture. Jesus is also presented to us as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And like a lion, Jesus vigorously protects what he loves. And he's willing to tear apart those who oppose him and his people. Scripture tells us that at His second coming, Jesus will return on a white horse with a sword in His mouth. It's a picture teaching us spiritual truth. The sword coming out of His mouth teaches us that simply by speaking words, Jesus will wage war against sin and sinners on all the enemies of God. And just as Jesus spoke and the wind and the waves obeyed, so Jesus will speak and all the rebellion of men will be squashed in a moment like ants under a boot. He is not safe. Yes, as Christians, Jesus is our bridegroom, our husband, the lover of our soul. Jesus is our most intimate companion, But let's not forget that we are married to a king. A warrior king. The warrior king. Such that Revelation 19 says He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus is not safe because He is holy. Holy, holy, holy. Pure to the nth degree, righteous and just and genuine and clean through and through, and therefore, he will not affirm you in your sin. If you follow him, you will find that in this life, he cares far more about your holiness than your happiness. Happiness will come. One day, heaven will be upon us at His right hand, our pleasures forevermore. The sufferings of this life are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. But there is no heaven without holiness. Hebrews 12.14 speaks of the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And like the most intense detox, like chemotherapy for the soul. Jesus' aim for you in this life is not your comfort. It is to rid you of your sin and to make you holy. So look at our text. It's familiar to us. Don't water it down. To follow Jesus means the denial of self This is not a comfortable denial. This is not an easy, painless denial. Jesus says we must take up our cross. Crucifixion was renowned for its agony. It was renowned for how painful it could be exacting justice from criminals through torture. Jesus has not called us to a life of safety. He has not called us to a life of emotional and psychological ease. He has called us to a life of daily death. What did Dietrich Bonhoeffer say? When Jesus bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. As with Jesus' own crucifixion, it was common for criminals to take up their own cross and carry it to the place where they would be crucified. When you are carrying a cross, every step is hard. And we are to carry the cross of suffering in this life. Let me mention just two crosses for us so that we can see that Jesus isn't safe and therefore following Jesus isn't safe either. First, there is the cross of dying to our sins. This is the first and main cross that Jesus is speaking of in our passage. It is the cross of self-denial. Of saying no to your flesh. Of weaning yourself off of this world. And this can be traumatic. Do you remember when Rosaria Butterfield was here? And she shared with us her story. And she described her conversion as a train wreck. Because following Christ meant losing her lesbian lifestyle. It meant losing her life partner. It meant ultimately losing her career that she had given her life to. It meant losing the causes that she had stood for. The movements that that shaped her as a person. We are born again in a moment, but that happens at the core of who we are, and the rest of our lives is that seed of holiness sprouting and affecting every aspect of our lives, and we find ourselves being transformed like caterpillars, but the transformation, it can hurt, and it can be costly can be frustrating as we try hard to put the old man to death and yet the old man keeps rearing its ugly head. I love how Lewis puts this in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader when he's teaching us about how we can never rid ourselves of our own sins and our own power. Jesus must do the work of ridding us of our sin. And so we have Eustace. A boy. But in his sin, Eustace has become a beast. A dragon. And Eustace doesn't like this beast that he's become. He wants to tear off his beastliness. He wants to go back to being a boy. And so with his dragon claws, he keeps tearing off his skin. Tearing off his scales. But each time he pulls off a layer of dragon skin, he steps out of it. And then he looked at his reflection in the water and he sees there was another layer of dragon skin beneath. He's still a dragon. He says, I thought to myself, oh dear, how many skins have I got to take off? He says, I scratched away for the third time. I got off a third skin and just like the two others, I stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. He was still a beast. And then in steps the lion. The lion said, You will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was pretty pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. It hurt like bilio, he says. But he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only those times it hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying in the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, smaller than I had been, and he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much. I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone, and I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. Friends, losing our beastliness, having our sinful desires, our sinful proclivities, our self-serving habits stripped away from us, it can hurt. Like a cross. And so often... I have sat with Christians who said, I love Jesus and I want to follow Jesus. But there's this whole part of me that wants to do that thing that Jesus forbids or not do that thing that Jesus commands. There's this whole part of me that loves what Jesus hates and hates what Jesus loves. And I've sat with Christians in tears because of the, the agony they were feeling, the battle within the, the old self and the new self. It's exactly what Paul describes in Romans 7. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Dear friends, when you're in the grip of that struggle and you're feeling the agony of self-denial and crucifying the old self with its desires, when following Jesus hurts, don't doubt your salvation. I've seen that happen in the lives of Christians over and over. Justin, I must not really be a Christian because following Jesus is proving to be so hard for me. Friends, friends, The fact that you're experiencing that agony is to me the strongest evidence that you are a Christian. It's the person who doesn't know what I'm talking about that I'm worried about. It's the person who's never felt that agony, that's never experienced that struggle. The person who can say, I've been following Jesus for years, it's been pretty easy. I'm not sure you've met the lion that I know or felt his claws as he strips away our sin. So there is that cross of self-denial. Jesus is not safe. But then second, there is the cross of persecution. For Jesus himself will die on a cross, and the cross will be an instrument of persecution. And some of the very disciples that Jesus is speaking to in this passage will die on a literal cross. Peter supposedly died being crucified upside down. When Jesus says, If you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up your cross, he's not just talking about only the cross of self denial, though that's huge. But there's also the pain of being denied by others being mocked and slandered and misunderstood and opposed by people around you. In John 15, Jesus said to His disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, that's a promise. Some of the promises of the Bible are sweet. And we love them. And they're the the fuel in our spiritual engines. Other promises from Jesus, they're warnings. They're a heads up. So that we will be ready, so that we will prepare, so that we will not be surprised. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. It's a strange response to suffering, isn't it? rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus says, "Follow me," and then he walks right into persecution. I think what happened at the New York Times this week was truly a watershed moment because this is the elite of the elite. This is the New York Times. And while newspapers are losing their influence, that paper remains the most influential mouthpiece in this world. Secularists and progressives everywhere look to that paper to make sure that they are in lockstep with the current progressive ideologies. And it is now pretty much guaranteed that whoever their new editors are going to be, they will have to pass the litmus test of wokeness, Critical theory. These things we've talked about for many months last year. I spoke yesterday at a graduation about the gathering storm. About a rising tidal wave. And for some time we've been watching the wave build, the tsunami gaining strength. But I wonder if we have not just now reached the moment where the wave has reached its crest and the crashing down begins. Over the past two decades we've seen some harm done, we've seen some godly people lose their jobs because of their convictions, but those folks were an exception. I don't think that's going to be the case for much longer. I think workplaces are not going to look the same for Christians. I think government power is going to be wielded against us. You will be misunderstood. You will be labeled an oppressor. and An enemy of the society. I am not saying that I expect Christians to be thrown in prison here in America tomorrow. This thing has to work itself out. Christ could turn this thing around at any moment. But we must have clear eyes about what is happening and I am stunned at how quickly this thing is moving. It seems like every company in America came out this week in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And for some, it's just a slogan. And as a slogan, it's absolutely gloriously true. Black lives do matter because all lives matter, because human lives matter, because humans are made in the image of God. So, yes, Black Lives Matter. But for others, it's more than just a slogan, it's an entire movement with a worldview behind it. And you only have to go to blacklivesmatter.com to see what that worldview is. They don't hide it, it's not a, it's not a secret thing. Just two pieces of it. They say in the, what do we stand for? We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable they intentionally are seeking to disrupt the nuclear family that our children might be raised by villages. We foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless she or he or they notice the use of the plural for a singular, those that don't fit into male or female, disclose otherwise. Friends, this is an attempt by our society to throw off all common sense and truth so that we can be gods of ourselves. This is the Tower of Babel. But if you oppose it, you will find yourself in some trouble. A friend this week in Rocky Mount, whose name I have to keep anonymous, sent me a message. Responding to what I just shared with you on social media, he said, I agree with you, but I can't show that I agree with you because I can't show anything but support in social media postings for those victims of the oppressive, systemic, and structural racism of our country. Anything outside of the solidarity is against the values of the company and is liable for separation due to conduct that makes those oppressed victims of our company feel unsafe. Those were the words of my company. In other words, his company informed their employees that if they post anything questioning the Black Lives Matter movement, it would be grounds for firing because it could make people Feel unsafe. So if persecution has been promised, and it appears that persecution is now coming, how can we prepare now? Very quickly, number one, we must value our convictions more than our comfort. Jesus Christ, his gospel, and his truth are worth more than our lives, but that's easy to say. We may find ourselves tested. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to live for? What are you willing to be fired for? What are you willing to be misunderstood and hated for? We remember D-Day this month, boats and boats and boats of teenage boys charging the beaches of Normandy. The opening waves of soldiers suffered a, a fatality rate. The conservative estimate was 50% died, the, uh, the, the more g- generous estimates say perhaps as many as 98% of the opening waves died. But these guys understood what they were fighting for and they laid down their lives. Friends, if we love God and if we love our neighbors, we must have convictions worth dying for. And they need to be the convictions that are given to us in the faith, delivered once for all to the saints. We must be willing to stand for the Bible's teaching on who we are. Male and female, the Bible's teaching on what justice is, what righteousness is. Ultimately, if you lose biblical definitions, you lose the gospel. Second, knowing what we believe, knowing why we believe it, having God's word hidden in our hearts, we must have a vibrant hope of heaven. A vibrant hope of heaven. For Jesus, it was the joy that was set before Him that kept Him going to that cross. For us, we must be convinced that it is worth it to suffer in this life because of the glory ahead. We must remember that this life is but a vapor and that the one to come is eternal. If our lives are oriented around this world, and storing up treasures in this world, and seeking our pleasure and our comforts in this world, we're gonna be flabby Christians. weak need Christians unable to stand as the wave comes down. But if we long for heaven, if we see heaven as the reward ahead of us after a life of faithfulness to Christ, we will find fresh resolve The New Testament has a lot to say about the power of hope. And remember, hope is not a wish. It's not a, well, maybe I'm going to heaven or maybe I'm not. Hope in the Bible is the eager expectation of what God has promised. And if you have your eyes set with eager expectation on the day that you get to be with the Lord Jesus forever, that will give you power to stand right now. Whatever that might mean for you. May we as a church start singing even more about heaven. I'm going to be tweaking some of the hymns we see. We're, we're, we're going to have some more heaven hymns in coming months and years, I think. As many of the slaves before the Civil War, as they sang, Christian slaves, what, where was their hope? So many songs about heaven. The hope that helped them cope. We're going to learn from them. Finally, we must make sure that we have a growing teacher disciple relationship with Jesus Christ. How is your intimacy with Christ? Are you learning from Him? Are you bringing your concerns to Him? Is He the daily mentor of your life? Do you have a true discipleship relationship with Christ where He is your teacher and you're learning from His Word? I am here. Pastor Merle is here on behalf of Christ as under-shepherds. We fall fall very short of the the good shepherd. But we're here as under-shepherds and we want to help you grow. So now, more than ever, as we start these new discipleship programs, Sunday night, Wednesday night, let me encourage you to be here or online, grow with us, I think it's more important now than ever, and in your own life, pursue a stronger, healthier, more intimate fellowship with Jesus. As I think about the storms that might be ahead for me, I can't help but think about my marriage God has been good to me. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. My wife is my best friend. And I've always had the feeling if she's with me, I can go through anything. But we're not promised that we'll be together tomorrow. We don't know when death comes. The only relationship that truly sustains is the relationship with Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ can say, Lo, I am with you always. Therefore, do not fear. How is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? He is not safe. Not safe for your sin. Not safe for your welfare in this world. But ultimately, He is a fortress. Ultimately, He is a place of refuge. Ultimately, He is the safest place for your soul. May we trust Him. Let's pray.